A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax. And think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Oh, hi. Table for one? Perfect. Right this way. Can we bring you something? Soy latte, perhaps? Thought so? We have lots of nice selections today, all chosen special for you. Just take a look at the feed. You were looking at that bespoke suit site yesterday. You seemed a little interested in the worsted wool. Brown, was it? Mm Mm-hmm. Might be a bit pricey. But here's that furniture outlet you visited last year. The drop-leaf desk in Maple. Lovely. Oh, look. Is that Evelyn from the gym? Huh. She's been working out. But careful. You know how she can be sometimes. How about something different? Heard about this HistoryHit.com? Tons of subscribers. Everyone's talking about it. So many likes. And that Don Wildman? You really ought to tune him in. You won't regret it. Hey, look, it's everybody. Look at that. All your school friends far and wide. And that couple you worked with last year got married. Huh. The chef from last week's restaurant. What'd you think of that place? Five stars? Nice. We've got movies. We've got movie stars. Video games, shows at the school, sporting events at the stadium. It's your whole life on the menu, your whole world. People you know, people you love, people you wish you could love. Oh, and there's a recipe for vegan clam chowder, minus the clams. One sweet and foamy latte. Here you go. Piping hot. You're going to want to settle in. Have a good long scroll. If we've done our job today, you'll never want to leave. Here at the cafe, everyone's talking about the one we call Facebook. Hi, everybody. Welcome to American History Hit. Don Wildman here. Nice to have you. My grandmother, Ella Nusky, born in Philadelphia in 1899, witnessed everything from the Model T to men on the moon. But nothing changed her personal life more than the telephone. It is remarkable how, more than a century ago, that single invention altered human culture so dramatically. So much so that Ella's grandchildren, me and my sisters, could hardly imagine life without it. Now we have cell phones and internet and whole corporations that cater to connection, to knitting civilization ever more tightly together, for better or worse. And most notable among them is an American corporation that in a matter of two decades utterly integrated itself into daily life on a global scale, all based on a deep human need to be known, recognized, and understood to our families and the world. I speak, of course, of Facebook. The implications of what Facebook has accomplished within one generation are vast, economic, sociological, political. But as we reach the 20th anniversary of its founding, let's focus on the history in the company of a writer who has made it his business to know the business of Facebook. Stephen Levy, 
Welcome to the pod. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Stephen, you published your book, Facebook, The Inside Story, back in 2020. So many articles, many of yours in Wired magazine over the years. We've seen the movie, The Social Network, but it's 20 years of Facebook this month, February 2024. So let's catch listeners up on where it all began. Early 1990s, what is the world before Facebook comes along? Well, the world was just learning to use the internet, and they were learning to be connected. It was pre-mobile. You didn't have anything like the iPhone, which didn't come along till 2007. So people weren't connected 24-7. They were just learning to be connected in bursts. You know, it was sort of the AOL era. But in the late part of the 20th century, people did think about what we now think of as social media. And as a matter of fact, and I write about this in the book, there was a company called Six Degrees, which actually came out with a social media product that was a little ahead of its time. It was certainly pre-mobile. It was before people were on their computers all the time. And it certainly was something where someone couldn't reliably move their social network onto a computer. You'd have to ask people who really weren't even online to say, hey, would you learn to get online and then be on this app with me, this application where we have to be there together. But what I found was you know, that this program, Six Degrees, you know, sort of set the tone for the social media products that came out a few years later in the early 2000s, including Facebook. I remember being frightened by the sound of a fax connector, the screeching, <laughs> buzzing, and, and arguing with somebody online about it, and they were on the phone about it, and they were explaining it. Yeah, well, the modem sound was even noisier, right? When you, you had a computer and you had this external box called a, a modem, they're all built into computers now, but you know it, it would be like fuzzy, and it was like almost like you were like in the French Resistance making contact yeah. with the UK. <laughs> yeah, Dixon, I remember it being explained. It's a handshake, sir. Just get used to yeah. it. <laughs> Along comes MySpace, which starts to you know occupy this world more formally. And that begins the whole thing. It really did begin as a connection right from the start. I mean, that's how the internet was started by the military, right? Yeah, well, I mean, the internet is all about connecting people. And the way that it was generally done was by email. And then AOL connected people. And the early online services, it was interesting. I, I had covered them in real time. And I was writing about them in the early 80s. They started thinking that people would go online and just shop or they would look for news articles or whatever. But people really wanted to get in contact with each other. There was one service called Prodigy, which really got freaked out when people wanted to do that. And it, it cost them too much in connecting people. They tried to shut it down and there was a revolt. AOL had a big part of their business of people connecting with each other. And they particularly had a product called uh, Instant Messenger, where people couldn't stay in touch with each other. It was texting before its time. And Millennials use that compulsively, including Mark Zuckerberg. I don't think that you would have seen Facebook had it not for been for AOL Instant Messenger, which was being used literally by the founders of Facebook as Mark was building Facebook. So there we are at Harvard. It's early 1990s. Give me a brief on the bio of Mark Zuckerberg before this. Sure. Well, um, you know, Mark got to Harvard in the early 2000s. He grew up in Dobbs Ferry which is a suburb of New York City in Westchester County. It's sort of a high-income 
area. And he was a computer kid from the very start, a sort of a prodigy in terms of that. And he talked his parents into moving him out of the pretty good school system to a private school because they had better computers. And his mother told me a story that she wanted him to go to the private school just a few miles away from where they lived and be a day student. But he heard that Exeter, which was a very Tony boarding school in New England, had a much better computer program. And she begged him. She said, Mark, please just even come to the other school and listen to them and I can hear what they have to say. He said, well, I'll listen, but I'm going to Exeter. And he went to Exeter. And I thought that behavior later was exercised as he ran Facebook. He had also been tutored by a guy, right? Someone who was hired to train him in programming as a youngster. That's right. And, and his fo- he had a tutor and his father took him to uh, a class that pretty much everyone else in the class was college or graduate students. As a matter of fact, when his father took them, they said, why'd you bring your kid along? And he said, well, hey, this 11-year-old is the student. You know? <laughs> yeah. So he, when he went to Exeter, he just connected with the other kids, the few kids who were denizens of the very nice computer lab they had there. Yeah. It's all about games too, right? I mean, they were concentrating on empire building and so forth. Yeah. Mark always had a thing for the kinds of games where you control a whole civilization. His favorite board game was Risk, where you take over the world. And then he played like the civilization and games like that. So what happens at Harvard? I mean, there had already been some efforts to create something like this. He's in a group of friends. We Again, I refer to the movie most famously. This group of friends is talking about getting students together. This becomes a college project. Right. Well, he, he was friends with a few people who were oriented towards those things. He was mainly interested in building things. And that, that really excited him, just to sit there and code and build a product. And you know, he loved the idea of connecting people. Friendster, which I don't know how we talk much about, really even before MySpace, that was going to be the big social network. But that company, which is a Silicon Valley startup, really screwed up because it got so popular that it couldn't handle the rush and wound up having a very bad experience. So people drifted away from that. But Friendster was kind of a template for the way people connected with each other on a social network. And then MySpace came in and did the same thing. And that was dominant in 2004 when Mark was building what became Facebook. It was even 2003 when he started doing that. He had a friend named Adam D'Angelo from his days at Exeter who was also interested in that. And they worked together for a while. But in the fall of 2003, Mark started building his own products, including a very notorious one where people could compare pictures from the Harvard print Facebook and say who is more attractive and then make nasty comments about the other one. And Mark it's got called into face a lot of, mash, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Mark got into a lot of trouble for that. To be clear, that that was based on, a, on an Ivy League tradition, which was the Facebook, right? I mean, my wife went to Yale and she said they got this publication and it, it had the pictures of the faces, these headshots, so you could recognize and know who your classmates were. So to explain Facebook in its earliest stages, you have these college students. Let's go through the names that are famous. Eduardo Saverin, Dustin Moskowitz, and uh, Chris Hughes, I believe. This small nucleus of friends who create this thing, as you say, as more of a checking out your classmates kind of device. But this quickly becomes much more than this. I'm curious when it was recognized as the real thing, you know, by those in the know. They had a tremendous advantage 
coming out as a college student only application. There were the other ones, you know, they were general. Anyone could join them. And it's difficult to build the social network. Marx, and it wasn't really even the first one to do this, but it was one that was, you know, really easy to use and pick up. So Mark launched his in a bounded community. You couldn't get on Facebook unless you were on the Harvard.edu domain. And he had some features which were very attractive. The spring semester was coming up, and it would tell you if somebody you were interested in was going to take a certain class that next semester, what that would be. So you could arrange to be in that same class, a shared relationship status, and things like that. So you could learn about your friends. And it took off very quickly and saturated that whole community. You were being left out if you weren't part of that, right? So he was able to do that. And then like a game of risk, he looked at other colleges and said, where can I go next? He also, and this shows his competitiveness, he didn't look for colleges. There weren't any competing products. He went after the next one was Columbia. It was even before February was out, where they had something that some people were using. And he felt that he had some features of uh, Facebook, which were more attractive. So he knocked off the competition. And all that spring, they moved from one college to another, generally Ivy's, but then they went to Stanford and built up college after college. And by that summer, when he went to Silicon Valley, it was a pretty impressive startup. You've interviewed this man many times. Was he aware of how big this could get? Was he already strategically thinking in those terms, or was this a fun project that he was having a blast with? I think what happened was that when he got to Silicon Valley, he was exposed to some of the top venture capitalists there, and they just naturally think very big. Mark is very ambitious. And when he met up with people who told him, man, this could be big, he immediately, in his mind, like doubled down on what they said and got swept up in the ambition that is second nature in Silicon Valley. And what was the premium that he was selling? It was, it was an advertising. He didn't really have a firm business plan by then, but what he did have was a hunger for growth. And that is something which is very dear to the heart of people in Silicon Valley. And he ran into this guy who had heard about his product and, you know, actually connected with a little earlier, a guy named Sean Parker, who was one of the people who was, had been involved with products before. He'd been involved in Napster and he had been involved with a product you know, he helped found called uh, Plaxo, but the board threw him out. And, you know, so he was looking for something else to be involved with. And he took Mark under his wing and helped him do fundraising. And by that fall, they had hundreds of thousands of dollars in venture capital. Mark never got back to campus. Once he was in Silicon Valley, he didn't go back. Some of the people there, like uh, the Saverin, who was a guy who had put up some of the, of the money, you know, a very low amount of money in the early stages, he went back to school and they wound up, as you see in the movie, cutting him out. There's a lot of fiction in that movie, but the essential truth is, yeah, they did cut that guy out. And you could argue whether that was justified or not. But that part was true. But, you know, Sovereign, he, he wasn't part of that company when it was really taking off beginning in the fall. By the end of the year, they had a million users. The famous Winklevoss, right? The Winklevoss twins. All that comes later on when they sue. And no, no, that was earlier. The Winklevoss people had hired Mark for a project in 2003, and they say that Mark stole the idea of building a social network from them. 
Well, no one could steal that idea. That that was in the air. But what did happen and that I concluded, and I confronted Mark directly with this the way I believed it, was Mark got a little contract with them to do some work for them and dragged his feet so their project would come out later than his. I believe that Mark, even in our last interview, we were arguing about this, said, no, that wasn't the case. But I think that happened. But I think if they never hired Mark, they probably wouldn't come out with anything. They didn't have what it took to build Facebook or even a middling application. So the luckiest thing that ever happened was Mark screwing them over because they got a big settlement. And later they stumbled on Bitcoin and made a lot of money, a real lot of money. I'll be back with more American history after this short break. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. The key to Facebook was its accessibility. I remember that feeling myself. Oh, I can just jump on here for free. That was the portal that brought so many people in so quickly and led to such growth, right? Yeah, well, they, they were able to, what they say in Silicon Valley is get the dials right to have an interface that where you can get what you want out of it. But there was also, by building those intense communities of colleges, he learned what it took to bring people on and keep them on. He learned that it was so important that when people got on the you know platform, the, the very first thing they needed was people they knew and information about the people they knew. And that's where the growth came in. And they wound up in the early days, and I documented this in the book, doing some pretty dicey things about scraping your information to figure out who you knew who wasn't on the platform and then getting them to get on the platform. All of this, I mean, we're talking about a very short period of time for any business let alone something that's eventually very quickly going to move all the way around the world. It's an incredible trajectory that they're on. That was the key, that they were collecting data. I mean, in the good sense, they were collecting data. They were kind of categorizing you, connecting you. All of this became another kind of machine than he had even intended on building, I suppose. Does this intersect with the development of algorithms and that kind of complexity? 
Yeah, I mean, a big turning point that I saw for Facebook was the year 2006. They were building up. They were, you know, still start of the year, college only, but they have big plans to expand. And I actually got hold of a notebook that Mark kept that year where he shared all his plans for it and outlined the products. And he called it the book of change. And you really got a window into his mind by looking at that notebook where he talked about how he was going to open it up to the world and also had plans for a, a groundbreaking product called the Newsfeed. And that was something that was really instrumental in keeping people on the platform. Before the Newsfeed, people would share information on their own little profile, right? It was almost like a, having their own like web page inside Facebook. But you had to go there in order to look at that, right? So if I had a new girlfriend, you know, I'd say, I'm in a relationship, but I put it on my page. And you might not know that news unless you said, hey, what's going on with Steven, right? Yeah. Or if I went to a party, I'd, I'd talk, talk about it, maybe put a picture or something. Um, now, uh, the news feed took that information and pushed it at you in a stream, right? Like a zipper in Times Square, in a series of like a headlines. And all of a sudden, I'd go on there, and the newsfeed would be my homepage. And I'd say, oh, Stephen has a girlfriend. And two days later, they'd say, whoops, Stephen broke up with his girlfriend. And then they'd say, oh, you know, Mary went to a party. Here's the pictures. Why wasn't I invited to that party? And just you know, be in the middle of your social world or the world where you wanted to be part of the social world and, like, hear everything about it. It would be like you would get all the gossip, like, fed straight at you. You'd be mainlining it. And you'd go there multiple times a day to see what was new. It was an organic shift of consciousness that, I mean, even to use the word news as applied to personal life was kind of a shift. You know, suddenly our lives mattered more than they did before because this online bulletin board essentially existed for a constant news feed of yourself. That's right. And he even called them stories. So it said, so-and-so is, isn't in a relationship anymore. Just that sentence would be like a story in a newspaper. But at the same time, all that detail is constantly being collected, I suppose, as data and being distributed and sold. Is that a proper way to talk about it or not? Well, that kind of was evolving into a strategy as they got bigger and, you know, the costs go up. It cost a lot of money as the company grew and they were measuring their users in millions. They needed servers to support this. As it got bigger, they needed support people and, and all sorts of things. That's why they needed more venture capital uh, as, as, as that went on. Um, and then as they opened up to the world, all of a sudden, it wasn't just your social network that was providing news. It was your larger network. Maybe your, your mother got on it, right? And she wanted to know what was going on. So then you had to figure out, how can you post things without your mother seeing it? And then you had to figure out, gee... There's more news about your social network than you're going to be able to consume, you know, going there a few times a day. So we have to figure out what to show you, right? What items are going to be more important to you? What are our priorities for what's important? And as they started to sell advertising, then they had to decide, gee, what is important for us to learn about you, you know, and, and, and what we show you? So that all got mixed in together and they had to make these choices and they had to gather more information about you to know what things to show you would keep you on the platform for the longest time. Because they essentially become a store. First, they're an advertising platform, but then they're also a store, I would imagine, right? Making money on both ends. 
Yeah, the store stuff never really took off anyway the way the advertising did. And, you know, they had different schemes for advertising. Some of them, one of them called Beacon, wound up blowing up in their faces because people felt that it was a violation of their privacy. They would actually have like beacons, like little pointers out in the web. And if you bought something on the web, they would tell your friends about it, right? So there were cases where people bought an engagement ring and the news got sprung on the recipient from her Facebook feed. That wasn't good. There is a quote about this very issue from Zuckerberg. People think that we've eroded privacy or contributed to eroding it. I would actually argue that we've done privacy innovations, which have given people new types of privacy or semi-private spaces in which they can come together and express themselves. Does that hold up for you? Not really. You know, a lot of the privacy features that the company had were buried under menus. And it's just a truism in technology that the vast majority of people stick with the default settings, right? So the default settings are set to public. Only a small percentage are going to take the trouble to figure out, gee, how do I limit this to a smaller group of people? Things like that. What is the backdrop of all of this is this whole technological innovation that is constantly evolving as we go. Facebook quickly shifts into becoming part of the metaverse. In fact, they end up rebranding themselves as meta. I still don't sort of buy that myself, but that's the name. I just want to get a sense of the eras here. We're talking about this being 20 years. So the first 10 years are all about figuring it out. Yeah, I break it up. I think there was the building stage, which kind of ended like in 2006, which is a big year for them. That's the year that uh, Mark Zuckerberg also turned down a billion-dollar offer from Yahoo to buy the company. And then when Sheryl Sandberg got there from Google, became the chief operating officer, she really ramped up the advertising business, the business model. And that turned out to be huge for Facebook, but also required a lot more data about people. And, And then there was a period when mobile became ascendant, where Facebook actually was caught short. It had been built for the web on the desktop, and they hadn't really planned for mobile, and they had to catch up on that. They had an IPO in 2012, which was not that successful because even though I think they had solved mobile by then, the results hadn't come in. And then from there, it was big, big growth and big, big success and huge revenues, and everything kicked in. And in 2016, even though Facebook had been cited for privacy violations and other things they were, people were critical about, after the 2016 election, people began to become much more critical of Facebook, and they gave it a lot more scrutiny and found a lot of things they didn't like. It becomes a mobile online company, 2012, market value $102.4 billion, just unthinkable numbers. When does it become meta? So a couple of years ago, Mark Zuckerberg you know, he'd always been excited about virtual reality. He bought a company called Oculus in 2014 for $2 billion. And he said, this is a 10-year project, which was like huge for a company which likes to move fast and sometimes break things. And it still feels like a 10-year project from now, but he never lost his excitement for that. And some people think it was in part because to distance the company from all the criticisms it was getting about privacy. But he changed the name of the company. And his passions was clearly with the part of the company that was building something new, while, of course, all the revenues of the company were based on the social network that was still operating and still making a lot of money. Connecting billions of people is inevitably going to run you into questionable territory. People are going to use it for nefarious reasons, you know, underhanded reasons. 
How do you think Facebook's response to this has been? Have they sort of completed that task at this point, or will this be ongoing forever? It doesn't have a great history of recognizing the dangers that come from connecting. At one point, everyone thought that what could be better just connecting people? What's the downside of that? But as it turns out, when you connect people and when what you show people is based on engagement, right? And people click on things that make them angry more than things that make them happy. And when they see friends that you know are living perfect lives, they feel bad. And everyone jimmies their profile to make things look like they're living a perfect life when they probably aren't. There's all sorts of consequences that for years, Facebook was in denial about until they were like really forced to deal with it. And to this day, it's not hard to find ways that they fall short in providing an experience which isn't permeated by toxic content or things that people feel shouldn't be on the platform. It's a huge task to police the platform. And you can't give Facebook or Meta great grades for how they've done that over the years. They definitely made improvements, but you could still find a lot to worry about, about the way Facebook, the product, Instagram, the product, and all really other social media as well. You know, X, which used to be called Twitter, is a big worry. Social media products that reward engagement are just prone to abuse, especially when you have a population which is hungry to hear things, whether they're true or not, that talk down the people they don't like. So you can't blame the way people are solely on Facebook and other products like that, but it is their problem. I resisted the temptation to make half of this conversation about the election coming up, but it's a hugely relevant issue. So the changes that had to have been made by Facebook to not end up in the situation we were in 2016, for sure, have they taken hold? I mean, we don't hear a lot of news about this these days. I'm assuming the ecosystem is better for this right now. Of course, you know, and for a few days after the election, everyone's pointing fingers out. But Mark Zuckerberg literally said, what's crazy to think we affected the election. Well, how crazy could it be when you sold millions of dollars of ads to Donald Trump, right? And presumably he did that because he thought he'd have a better chance of winning the election or his people did. So obviously social media did have an impact. Right. It was the bots and all that, which I was thinking about as far as identifying that kind of thing coming over from wherever they come from. But also the fact that these uh, fraudulent stories, the fake news and so forth that made them such a pawn in the game. I thought that was kind of that must have made people pissed at Facebook to be seen in that light. Yeah, I dove a lot into the uh, international aspect of it. That's where I thought some of the growth was reckless where they would move into countries where no one, virtually no one of the companies spoke the language and they couldn't really see what was going on. And in terms of like Myanmar and the Philippines, you know, people would tell them, hey, this bad stuff is happening. In some cases, the, the government would be abusing it. They didn't act decisively to address that. And sometimes people literally died in riots spurred by Facebook content. So it's a case where an American company has a huge influence over things that happen overseas. In some countries, Facebook became almost synonymous with the internet. It's really interesting to me, you know, being my age and, and knowing a lot more than perhaps a 20-year-old does as far as the reach of the American empire. But in a sense, this Facebook is that modern evolution, isn't it? I mean, call it imperialistic or whatever. It's just another version of the American 
way, I suppose, reaching out globally and being in every culture in the world. You could never see this coming, but I wonder how they view that responsibility there. That's interesting. So he's turning 40. So he has an anniversary of, along with Facebook. I think he's energized now by both the metaverse stuff and also more recently AI. The action in technology by far is in AI these days. And just like the people that he roped into using Facebook in 2004, Mark's got a lot of FOMO, you know, and he has a fear of missing out on the artificial intelligence. Everyone's obsessed with it. You know, that's going to be building up businesses in the future. But on the other hand, the company that he runs and has control over is still a social media company. That's where the money comes from and the other build businesses are building. So at a certain point, my guess is he's going to get tired of that social aspect and maybe either within meta or out or not, you know, concentrate on new stuff that excites him. Where does Mark Zuckerberg see this all going? Is he going to get out of this business someday? Yeah, he's also, and this is like a sign he might be bored with social media. He's spent hours training and then he tore his ACL and, you know, but he's working back towards it. And his latest thing is he's raising cattle in his place in Hawaii, where he spends a lot of time, and he's feeding them macadamia nuts, so the beef will be really, really good. Quite a life. Stephen Levy is editor-at-large at at Wired Magazine. His reporting can be found at Wired.com. And his book, as we've discussed, is called Facebook, The Inside Story. Encourage everyone to read up on this. It is the 20th anniversary of Facebook now. And turn to Stephen for all the uh, stories to come. I really appreciate you talking in these terms. We're doing the history of things. I'm sure that's a, you know, looking backward is not your usual focus. So I really appreciate it, Stephen. Thank you, Don. I enjoyed it. Hey, thanks for listening to American History Hit. You know, every week we release new episodes, two new episodes, dropping Mondays and Thursdays. All kinds of content from mysterious missing colonies to powerful political movements to some of the biggest battles across the centuries. Don't miss an episode. By hitting like and follow, you help us out, which is great. But you'll also be reminded when our shows are on. And while you're at it, share it with a friend. American History Hit with me, Don Wildman. So grateful for your support. Thank you for listening to this episode of American History Hit. Please follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us, and you'll be doing us a big favor. Don't forget, you can also listen to all these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you'll also get your first three months for just $1 a month when you use code AmericanHistory at checkout.